Welcome to Paid Media Coffee. I'm Kelly Mancuso, and today we're talking about paid search account structure best practices. So here to help answer my probing questions and share their expertise in paid search, I have Anna Swinier. She's a senior paid search manager at Nebo. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Also have Cody Rape. He is a paid search specialist. Hello, hello. And Charlie Rogers. He's a paid media associate. Hey, guys. All right, so let's jump right in. Paid search practices and capabilities have evolved so much, not just you know since search started, but you know really every year new things are, are happening and emerging. So with the tools and the knowledge that we have today, what are the things that you all are first considering when you approach a new account and um, are building out new campaigns and kind of starting from scratch? Yeah, I think the most important thing to consider in the very beginning is budget. Mm-hmm. Budget can actually optimize your campaigns throughout the year pretty simply. Um, A lot of people forget about this step when they're planning out their accounts day one. But if you look at Google Trends or if you look at the Keyword Performance Planner, I've even looked at like finance websites before Mm -hmm. to try and figure out seasonality of the client that you're working on and really figure out when their peak months are and when they kind of have a little bit of a downturn. Those are great places to start for your account to take your total budget, if you have a yearly budget or quarterly budget, and decide how much that budget is used between months. Some clients do have weekly budgets as well, so Mm -hmm. that's something to consider. But for the most part, most of our clients are doing monthly budgets. So really factoring in seasonality is a great first step. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because also the size of the budget is really going to influence, you know, how many campaigns you're able to build out or, you know, what kind of focus uh, you have in the account as a whole. And then also there may be budgets by product line or by service or things like that that you need to take into account. So I think that is definitely a, a big thing. Charlie, what about you? I think one important piece of dialogue you want to have opened up from the beginning with your client or if you're running it yourself with your business, just making sure that you understand what are your business's goals and what do you hope to accomplish Mm -hmm. and then make sure that can align with paid search. So if you need to create some kind of goal or KPI that goes along with what paid search will help you do, then you might need to do that. But just make sure you consider that in the very beginning, like what do I need to accomplish for my business? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, there is a difference between the paid search goals that you want to accomplish, whether you have you know, a cost per conversion goal or conversion rate or traffic or whatever that might be, and then also how do those support your, um, as you mentioned, overarching business goals. So they should ladder up to that. And having a conversation with your client or the key stakeholders within your company to make sure that you're aligning paid search goals is really important. Yeah, and just kind of building off that, there are a few things that I, I think about when I'm first taking on a new client or building out a new account structure. Um, as Charlie mentioned, business goals is, of course, that needs to be top of mind. You know, we need to know what our client cares about most. The second thing I think about is the business verticals that your client may be in. Uh, you know, do they serve more than one vertical? If so, this will play a major role in segmenting campaign strategies down the road. And another thing that I think about is the client's product mix and their product segmentation you know, how diverse is uh, that product mix and, you know, how can you best leverage those products or services in this new account structure? That's a really good point too. Thinking about what are the priorities with them as well from like a product or service standpoint, because, and again, tying that back to budget, there may be things that aren't huge priorities that they don't want to focus on, or there may be things that are just too competitive. So if the budget's a little bit smaller, you might want to advise them not to focus on that. So yeah, definitely a great point. 
Um, how are you guys approaching match type segmentation when you're building out campaigns? Do you always think it's necessary to segment your campaigns or ad groups by match type? And if so, are you doing that at the campaign level or the ad group level? Yeah, so I believe you know how you segment your keywords is really uh, a spectrum of how much control you want when you're managing the account in the long run. Campaign level segmentation will give you the most control over bids and budgets, but um, if you have an account that has a ton of offerings uh, with a broad keyword depth, you know having campaign level segmentation can almost get overwhelming. So I really like to think about you know the long run when creating a new account structure and ask myself. How manageable will this account be as we grow? You know, will the added effort add incremental value to the account? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you know, and I'm thinking about match types as well when I'm breaking them out, whether it's campaign or ad group. I really focus on three different match types. I know there's several to choose from, but in my experience, exact match as well as phrase match and BMM or broad match modified. Mm-hmm. Those are the three match types that I typically use. Um, when I'm breaking them out, I like to segment my exact match keywords in one either ad group or campaign. And then the other I segment out, I do call it my BMM ad groups or broad match modified ad groups or campaigns, but I incorporate phrase in there as well. Okay. They kind of play on each other a little bit, which is why I don't mind bucketing them together. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen great performance if I break them out. So I typically do those two styles when I'm breaking them out. Yeah, there's not really a way to exclude broad match modified keywords from a phrase match ad group. Exactly. So you kind of have to bucket them together. Otherwise you risk overlapping keywords. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about close variance with exact match. A lot of articles, if you're reading about it. And yes, I have noticed my search terms expand a little bit with my exact match keywords, but even with the close match variance update, I'm still seeing my exact match keywords have higher conversion rates typically mm-hmm. than my broad match modified and my phrase match. I'm also seeing those CPCs still cheaper. They have increased slightly, but not to the extent where it requires us to start consolidating all of our match types mm-hmm. together. I'm still seeing great performance and it's a really integral part of our strategy to still break them out by match types. Cool. And I'd like to double down a little bit on what Cody said, which is thinking about how they can build to scale and especially in this industry where search practices and best practices change, but then also businesses can change and evolve over the years about what they're offering or what their core products or services are, you definitely want to think about a setup that will allow you to quickly and easily adapt to those changes so that it is manageable long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially you know if you start smaller and then you're going to scale later on, you need to make sure that you can easily do that. You don't want to find yourself in a mess and thinking, oh my gosh, what did I do to myself? All right. So at what point are you guys thinking about the audience strategy? And by audience strategy, I don't mean, you know, the audience that you're targeting or, you know, your persona, so to say. I mean the audience in terms of like layering on remarketing lists or other behavioral audiences like um, affinity audiences and market audiences or detailed demographics. At what point are you thinking about layering those onto your campaigns? Is that something that you wait to do post-launch or are you starting with that at the beginning? I like to think about it pretty early on because we have so many options of audiences we can layer and have access to so much data to use. It can really help you as you start to launch your campaigns to go ahead and accumulate that data and build those audiences up to then see what makes sense in terms of optimization that's down the road. Okay. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, when, when you start a new campaign or a new, you're launching a new account, you can really be strapped for data. You know, you really just have what the client gave you, but as we all know, that might be totally different 
when you're looking at affinity audiences or what your audience cares about outside of what your client offers. I believe laying on those audiences early will give you some insights to you know, what your audience cares about and how you can speak to them down the road when you're creating ad copy and you know, altering your ad copy. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think a lot of our fundamental account decisions may or may not be impacted by our audience strategy that we have in the beginning. So for instance, if client retention is a really big goal for your client, then budget might be a factor for previous site visitors or maintaining those relationships Mm -hmm. with people that have interacted with your website. So that's the step one that would need to be broken out by the campaign type so that way you can control that budget that's going to that audience. Um, If that's not a factor for you, then maybe you just want to message that audience differently. So then that would factor into your ad copy strategy and you would apply if-thens and change your ad copy a little bit based off of the audience that you're trying to message differently. But like Charlie and Cody also said, if none of those are a factor, then also if you have a smaller budget, that plays a bigger role in layering on these audiences like we've talked about because you don't have the amount of budget you know, to span 100% impression share, absolute top page of rate and last all day. Mm. So layering on those audiences in the beginning and really garnering those insights are huge to be able to use your budget strategically throughout the day and really hone in on that audience that you've seen historically performs really well. So that's another great insight too uh, for our clients. So you guys are layering them on as observations in the beginning and then, you know, kind of monitoring and then potentially taking the next step from there, like adding bid modifiers or potentially changing ad copy with if-then statements and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I start, like you said, Kelly, with observation at 0%. And then what I do to change my bid modifiers is I'll check them at least every 30 days. Sometimes I'll check them more than that on the month, depending how much volume the audiences are getting. Mm-hmm. And from there, I take the overall campaign performance as like the baseline. And I assess how those audiences are doing over or under that baseline. Mm-hmm. And I create my bid modifiers from there. Awesome. So when thinking about organizing your different keyword themes, how do you balance brand versus non-brand versus competitor terms. Do you guys have any rules or recommendations for for doing that? I know brand versus non-brand can be a big point of contention for many clients with some going, you know, all the way in one direction where they want to be, you know, 100% impression share for their brand terms and then others don't even want to touch it. So, what do you guys think? Yeah, so we always start with brand, non-brand, and competitor keywords broken out. That's our step one when we're thinking about keywords and how we're going to bucket them. Uh, It's really smart to break out your campaigns that way just from, like you said, a budget and optimization standpoint. Mm -hmm. The rule of thumb for us, if your client doesn't have a preference on how much brand they want to spend, is 80-20. So 80 non-brand and 20 brand. And the reason for that is non-brand is obviously much more competitive, it's much more expensive, it's more costly to stay in that auction. Mm -hmm. So we found that 80-20 is a good way to keep your brand presence really strong, as well as staying competitive in the auction for non-brand. Another point I'm going to bring back from earlier would be, you know, refer to your business's goals when you think about how you're going to divide up the budget between those brand and non-brand terms, and then if you even have the budget to do a competitor campaign. So make sure you think about how that's going to accomplish those overarching goals. And then another tip I would say would be for a brand campaign, if you have so many brand terms and you need to pull out your core brand into their own campaign, you can really make sure that campaign is not capped by budget, that is maxing out search impressions share to protect your brand in the SERP because we've seen that competitors will try to get in and compete with your brand terms. What do you mean by core brand? So if I'm going to go in and execute that strategy, what would I take away as my, my core brand term? 
like core brand, I would say it's your highest performing, but it's probably just your brand name itself. Mm-hmm. Maybe an exact match and also potentially a phrase match. Okay. I would just make sure it is protected at all costs. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I think um, for businesses that may not necessarily be, you know, household names or drive a ton of search volume, I find it beneficial to segment branded keywords into their own dedicated campaigns with no budget restrictions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to really capitalize on our awareness efforts from display or even your non branded keywords. Yeah. Good point. Um, when segmenting non-branded keyword themes, this is where, um, when creating your initial account structure, really thinking about the product mix and you know what your client offers comes into play. So I, I really like to use the client's website as a roadmap, really looking at you know how they've segmented their products or services on the website, um, and this is typically a good starting point to align with you know how the client operates internally and how they classify their product or service mix. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. A lot of times when we're thinking about brand keywords, we're just thinking about the brand name, but it also funnels down to what products they have, Mm -hmm. which locations they have, um, those sorts of things too. We also fall into our brand keyword bucket. Yep. Mm -hmm. Are you guys always building out competitor campaigns to start with? What I found in highly competitive landscapes where there isn't a big product differentiator, competitive campaigns are a very integral part of my strategy. It's a great way to make sure that you're competing in the space against your competitor queries as well. A lot of times what I found with products that the brand recognition isn't as strong, bidding on a competitor term can give you great results as well. And it can be valuable to boost up your non-brand performance as well, which is a great factor too. Another thing that I like to do with my competitor campaign is layering on the RLSA audiences from previous visitors. Mm -hmm. That way, I know that this person has already visited my website, they've already interacted with my account, and now they're going out and shopping elsewhere on competitor terms. So that's just a way that I like to keep my brand top of mind for that user Mm -hmm. and really circle them back to my website and keeping them back on my brand as much as possible. Yeah, that could also provide some pretty... Like interesting insights, I think, for the client as a whole. Like maybe they made a change on the website or they rolled out a new campaign or ad spot that didn't resonate well with people. And now they're going to the website and actually ending up converting with customers. So if you see an influx of that um, RLSA audience's impressions, that would be a good sign that maybe they did something that wasn't a, a great idea. Yeah, so along with insights for just the impressions from the competitor campaign overall, another great point to having a competitor campaign in your strategy is auction insights. That'll give you better insights to tell if your competitors are bidding on other competitors. Mm -hmm. So it's a great gauge to tell, are other competitors using competitor campaigns as well? Um, Should you not be doing that? Or is that the status quo for that vertical? It's a great insight to see if your strategy lines up with what others are doing in the space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe Anna really did highlight a ton of pros of having a competitor campaign, but I don't think it's always necessary. You know, keeping the consumer in mind is important here. Uh, You know, you want to ensure that your client isn't coming across as untrustworthy when you know, serving ads on competitor terms, especially at the top of SERPs. Mm-hmm. This can really be vertical specific and in most instances can be a value add, but uh, you know, make sure you know your audience and industry well enough uh, before making this call. Yeah, and definitely I would say don't use ad copy or messaging where you're trying to pretend like you are the competitor. If you're showing up on those SERPs, you want to make it clear that, mm-hmm. you know, that's not who you are, but they should choose you over that 
competitor because of you know X, Y, and Z. So um, I've definitely seen a lot of those more predatory tactics where they're trying to mimic you know, the competitor's ad copy or taglines or even using them in their brand names in the ad copy themselves, which obviously isn't allowed. Competitor conquesting can certainly be tough, and especially when your brand has this certain, you know, status to it, mm-hmm. where people are really just considering your brand over anything else about like the actual quality or the product or service you're offering. Uh, I think, like you mentioned, Cody, too, it's like if you can't afford competitor conquesting, make sure you exclude those terms because if you let them slip into your other campaigns, that's also you know wasted spend if you're not really strategizing properly to go after it. And Kelly, like you just mentioned, it this really can influence your approach to ad copy and not to go too far ahead into what we're about to talk about, but it definitely should be a consideration in that mm-hmm. phase as well. Yeah, and something that none of y'all mentioned is the cost impact of bidding on competitor terms. A lot of times, those CPCs obviously are going to be really high, and so you know if it's something that you know you have really strict goals or a really strict budget, and they could be more efficiently allocated to other types of campaigns, you know, you might want to be careful with bidding on a competitor term. But one thing that, Cody, I think that you have done this in one of your accounts before is like a little trick that I read about a while back where um, if you have a branded campaign and you want to kind of boost your quality score a little bit and potentially improve your CPCs is have your modified broad match keywords of the competitor and then add your own brand name at the end of the keyword as a true broad match term. That way the user's query doesn't actually have to contain your own brand term. It can only contain the competitors, but there's a little bit more relevancy between the keyword and the landing page and the ad copy. So I know that's worked well for us in the past. All right, so shifting over to ad copy, how does the high-level keyword theme influence your approach to ad copy? We've talked about the difference in campaigns from brand and non-brand. I think that would definitely influence your copy. Mm-hmm. So for brand campaigns where it's a little less educational with your copy, more compelling to drive those stronger call-to-actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you have enough volume in your brand campaigns, that would even provide you a way to test different ad copy variations since you have that you know, higher volume and intent there. Mm-hmm. Then on your non-brand copy, need to be more educational focused. These people might not know about your brand and what you offer, and you want to definitely compel them to click on the ad. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Um, I think testing ad copy is definitely something that, like running it through a brand campaign, you can get quicker insights sometimes, especially if that volume is there. Yeah, and it's cheaper. Your CPCs yeah. are mm-hmm. much lower on brand campaigns. Cool. Just building off that, of what Charlie just said, you know, matching ad copy to keyword text and user intent is, I would say, crucial for successful ads. Uh, you know, quality score is as important as ever, and, and having your ad copy align with, you know, the user search query and also align with the content of the landing page will, you know, not only make your account more prominent in search auctions, but you'll also accomplish what's most important here, and that is, you know, serving the user mm-hmm. uh, with a valuable experience. What I typically do is I'll make three to four general ad copy templates mm-hmm. and I'll find and replace or I'll include modifiers based off of my ad copy themes, mm-hmm. my different products, adjectives, if we are breaking out even by color or a different type of uh, manufacturer. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to kind of keep your ad copy relevant and consistent for testing purposes, but to make sure that they're specific for whatever ad group theme you're on. Yeah, and then that kind of makes it easier to roll out the ads and tailor them at scale if you have like those similar kind of variations that can be tweaked. Yeah, exactly. And also when you're talking about measuring 
ad copy tests as well, even though it's not the same exact ad, you've got the primary sentiment or the primary theme of the ad is the same, regardless of the keyword. Sometimes too, if brands have specific brand drivers or brand callouts, those are great ways to break out your ad copy templates as well. Want to focus on one message for each ad copy. That's a great way to see performance, see what's performing differently. Uh, what you know, a basic brand awareness campaign might deliver could be different than what a search campaign is delivering. So that's a great point too. It kind of ties back to what Charlie was talking earlier about with uh, the educational factor of ad copy. And something too that we haven't touched on yet in terms of ad copy is we talked about brand and we talked about non-brand, but competitor campaigns also offer a different way to message the user. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking about it, someone that's typing in a competitor query obviously isn't expecting to see your ad. Mm -hmm. So what I've found in the past to be successful is to focus more on a quick grab sort of ad copy such as like a promo messaging yeah. or a don't wait, you know, visit us now, um, limited time offers. Those things really grab users quickly with competitor messaging. So to what degree do you guys think that the number of ad groups a campaign has or the number of keywords in an ad group has matters? Is that something you're trying to be mindful of or do you just build out and see where the numbers fall? This definitely plays a big part into how much budget you have for your campaigns. I have found if my ad groups get over 30 in a campaign, some ad groups and keywords start to lose presence mm -hmm. or they flat out don't spend at all. Something, a good tip that I've found you know, after I've been running my campaigns for a little bit and I see if one ad group is prioritizing majority of the campaign spend, I'll break that out into a new campaign mm -hmm. in order to let other keywords and other ad groups see the light of day, I guess, yeah. in a way and really test them as well. And if you have one ad group that is taking all of the impressions and spend from a campaign and it's a shorter tail ad group and you've got longer tail variations of that ad group in the campaign, maybe check and make sure that you've got appropriate negatives on that shorter tail ad group. So for example, if you have the ad group Nebo and then the ad group Nebo Agency, you would want to negative agency from the Nevo ad group to make sure that, you know, you're funneling your spend correctly. So that could be um, a good way to, you know, just make sure you've set up the campaign correctly in the beginning. That's a good execution point for my tip, which is to keep your ad groups tightly themed when I mean, we've talked about it. But while you're making sure you don't have too many ad groups in one campaign, you still want them to be tightly themed. So if you have to break it out, that's what you have to do. It's a great point, Anna. Mm -hmm. One thing we haven't mentioned yet are SCAGs or single keyword ad groups. <laughs> And I'm totally okay with those. I think sometimes it's required, and especially if you have your campaign segmented by match types, mm -hmm. it would be required for that in certain instances. Cool. Yeah, that's a good point. Charlie, you mentioned it's required, and sometimes it is required. If your brand name is one or two words total, then mm -hmm. it might make sense to have an exact match keyword as a SCAG. It's one of those things that gives us control as advertisers and make sure, you know, even from a PR standpoint, if something's going on with that brand, we can control that one keyword. Mm -hmm. It's really important. For sure. All right. So I want to move on to automation. Where does automation come into play when you're building out a new strategy? Are you thinking about this initially or is it more of like a latter phase in the account? Automation is such a big category, right? There's so many different types of automation that this is available now. This is actually now. a trick question. I'm kidding. Go ahead, Charlie. <laughs> sure. So initially, I think there are some basic scripts, you know, automation scripts I like to throw on, as I say, for in case of emergencies. Mm -hmm. So a script that watches your budget and makes sure if you have a tight budget for the month that it'll cut off at the right time if you go over. 
as well as a script that looks over the landing pages, constantly crawling every hour to test and make sure there are no errors. And if so, it'll alert you immediately and email you so you can get on nice. that and make sure and see what the, where the problem is. Yeah, there's nothing worse than like finding out that the site's been down or you know ads are disapproved or something like after the fact. So Right, and I've had this script actually catch a site being down first before any other errors came in. So it was actually pretty helpful. That's great. I'm sure those scripts are really helpful. So maybe we'll try and tweet them out through the Paid Media Coffee sure. Twitter account. Yeah. Yeah. I think of automation when I'm first setting up my accounts in two different ways. I think about it from an ad type perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, dynamic search ads or DSAs, as well as responsive search ads, RSAs, are two great automation ad type tools if it falls within your account strategy. I found that for e-commerce clients, DSAs are a great value add. Mm-hmm. I've actually used dynamic search ads instead of broad match keywords to let Google or Microsoft crawl the websites and figure out which queries you might not already have in your campaigns, but uh, you can add them as well. So that's also a great tool that I've used. So would you make sure that any of the keywords that are present in your account are added as negatives on that? Yes. So they're not overlapping? So I take a single list of all of my active keywords in the exact match form and I apply them as a negative keyword list onto my DSA campaign. Okay. So that way you're not competing with yourself and you're only finding different queries that aren't already incorporated in your account. So it's basically like a keyword mining tool. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. And rule of thumb um, also for that is I make sure that my DSA campaigns are spending less than any of my other campaigns. Mm -hmm. That's like a good gut check for me to see that my account's in good health. But then along with ad types, you also, uh, you know, there's that smart bidding. <laughs> we haven't talked about that yet. Yeah. The huge thing that's coming through search. What I do when I start an account is I always start with manual CPC first. I really want my campaigns to garner a benchmark mm-hmm. of performance. So applying manual CPC in the beginning for probably about two weeks mm-hmm. gives a great gauge for CPCs as well as click-through rates, see how the campaigns perform on a daily basis, and then start rolling out smart bidding. And that way you can really test if a smart bidding tool is doing better or worse than your manual CPC benchmark. We found that max conversions works really well for campaigns that have smaller budgets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're limited by budget. Yeah, exactly. And then target CPA obviously is a great route too. Are you, during that manual CPC period, are you using enhanced CPC? No. Interesting. Okay. Is there any reason? Would you like If there's not, then. Well, I think think that enhanced CPC, I have seen great success with that, but it's not giving me that true benchmark of how the campaign just performs on its own. And enhanced CPC uses signals and user intent and all these other cues that we can't see as advertisers. Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like it's giving it a little bit of a false read on what just the bear, the benchmark is for those campaigns. Okay. Makes sense. Cody, what about you? Yeah, I believe Anna had a good point when talking about dynamic search ads and responsive search ads. Um, I like to use this as kind of a testing ground. It's a really great way to test out new value propositions and ad copy, uh, really mix and match your call outs. It's a great tool for really generating the best ad copy possible. Mm-hmm. But I believe in terms of the bigger picture with automated bidding for more manageable counts, I believe it's more of a nice to have at the time of launch. Um, and as you kind of grow and scale your account, then you can kind of start thinking about, you know, what automated bidding strategy would work best based off the results you've seen in the account. Great tips, great advice. 
So to wrap this up, I would like for each of you to give us one final piece of advice or a recommendation that you want our listeners to remember when it comes to you know, approaching a new account. I would definitely say all the topics that we've covered today and all the features for search campaigns, build out more in the beginning. Build out as much as you think might be applicable for your account. You can always downsize later, and at least you have that historical performance to garner any learnings in the future. Okay, cool. I think it's great to take in consideration tips from paid search professionals, such as this podcast or other resources. But remember, there really isn't a one-size-fits-all approach yep. and you have to tailor it for whatever you're working on at that time. Uh, and you have to think about your business and then the end users and what makes the most sense for both those groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a ton of resources out there. I know, Anna, you and I have talked about how when we're trying to like get advice on something, the specificity of the search queries that we will put in about, you know, like how to do this with this vertical using this tool and to get this result. But one tip I would have on that is make sure, or at least I always do sort my search results by time to make sure I'm getting more recent articles and tips and content just because as we all know, things change so much in this industry. So you don't want to read something and then go and try and implement it or talk to a client about it and realize that, oh wait, that's not even possible anymore or you know, the whole approach has changed. So, all right, Cody, what about you? So I think a good closing tip would just not to be narrow-sighted when first creating your account structure, really think about the long run. One of my favorite acronyms are the five Ps, which stands for proper preparation prevents poor performance. Really thinking about, you know, how what you do now is going to impact your account, you know, six months from now, a year from now, and even two years from now. You really want to set yourself up for success in the best way with, you know, the most efficient account structure possible. And I think we have a lot of great information for you with this podcast. Yeah, I agree, Cody. <laughs> our <laughs> listeners do too. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I learned a lot. So thank you. Our next episode is going to be focusing on the importance of cross-channel search strategies. So we are going to be talking about different search engines and tips and tricks for leveraging those and also thinking about search engines in a little bit of a different way. So if you like the podcast, please go and leave us a review, leave us a rating, send us an email, let us know. Um, We're always excited to hear from you guys and any questions or comments that you might have. Um, You can email us at paidmediacoffee at neboagency.com and also follow us on Twitter at Paid Media Coffee. All right. Well, thank you all and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.